We are studying Ephesians, as you heard. So why don't you open your Bibles to chapter one. We're in a uh, really great paragraph. In fact, if, if Paul passed away after paragraph one, I'm cool with that because there's so much in this paragraph um, that we're plowing through. And we're going to do it again this morning. So Ephesians chapter one, um, we're going to dig through it. Before we, uh, before we pray, as always, we want to invite the Spirit to uh, preach this message and to move in our hearts and apply it. And uh, we want to ask for his, um, his grace this morning. So let's join our hearts together. God, this, this is your word. This is true. This is life and salvation. This is hope and joy to the redeemed. So God, I pray that your spirit would move in this message and these words and bring encouragement and conviction to our hearts. God, my prayer is that as always, you guard my tongue. I pray that I speak only what you have prepared for us. And most of all, uh, Lord, that we pray you'd be glorified in what we do now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> to some of you, this is going to sound like a very familiar story. Um, I told you uh, of this story, real life experience for me a couple years ago, actually nine years ago. My 25th anniversary was approaching. <clears throat> and I'm not necessarily the most creative guy when it comes to planning, okay? But I heard Neil talk about all these cruises that he went on. Um, having never been on a cruise, I went to Neil and said, what do you think? Maybe I should do this for my 25th anniversary. He goes, oh, you're going to love it. Go to the cruise. And he was all over it. Um, it was the worst vacation of my life. <laughs> Thank you, Neil Pitchell. <laughs> Beyond several things that I could complain about, I'll tell you the main thing. If I boiled down my experience, it came down to one particular thing, my ignorance. That's why I didn't enjoy it. Because I found myself on a boat in the ocean, uh, typically at night, with all these dressed up people going to rooms I didn't know existed to eat food I didn't know was there. I, I, all I brought was a pair of shorts, a t-shirt, and flip-flops, and they didn't invite me in those rooms. And so my wife and I ate in the carb deck the whole time, pizza and cheeseburgers. I was on the same trip as thousands of other people. I was on the same boat. We made all the same stops on our little tour through Mexico. I probably paid the same price-ish as everyone else. Um, but I didn't know what I bought. And so I missed out. Which is the, a perfect illustration for some of our experiences with what we're studying here this, this morning. You, you would use these phrases. I'm a Christian. And by that you mean, and fair, I... Uh, I realize I'm a sinner and I need saving. So somewhere in your life, there's a narrative about Jesus. But so many people's story about Christianity and faith and even salvation pretty much begins and ends with that sentence. That's about all you know. You've never gone deep. You've never wondered about God. You never saw the mystery of God and the story of the good news. It's simply about you and getting you out of hell and into heaven. And that's kind of the end of the narrative. You have no idea what you have. 
So of all things that Paul could do in one paragraph, an amazing sentence was to overload us, overwhelm us with what belongs to us in Christ. That's the intention of, of this particular section that we're in. If we really got it, that's why I was sort of joking, sort of not joking. If this is all that we have, we would have enough. Because if we really got this, I promise you, your faith in your life would be revolutionized. So all of us here, and myself included, have to deal with some realities when we come to anything like this that declares to be true, okay? So, so let's just admit it right up front. There are things that we don't know and understand. We have no clue. Some of us aren't even interested and then there are things that we do know. And then we all deal with this, and this is what kills us. There are things we think we know, and we're wrong. Right? So let's just set some ground rules when we come to this wonderful sentence, okay? Let's set the ground rules. This book, and this book alone, is the source of truth. And we will submit ourselves to whatever it says, no matter what it confronts, no matter what it exposes, no matter if it hits our traditions and our past and everything we thought we knew, if it confronts all of that, let's submit ourselves to the word as the Holy Spirit comes here and opens our hearts and opens this truth. Is that okay? Some of us are okay with that. Are we all okay with submission to the scriptures? I hope so. Okay. It is not an overstatement, I don't believe, that this explosion of praise from Paul is perhaps the greatest sentence ever said. Like I said before, it's a run-on sentence. There's no punctuation in the original language. No commas, no periods, no breath, just coming, okay? There's more depth about the character of God, the work of God, the redemption of God, the people of God, the plan of God, the mystery of God in one sentence than any other place I can take you. Now, maybe I don't know other things, but in my life, this is, this is, this is the depth. In this one run, long run-on sentence, Paul is giving us the big picture. And, and so I'm gonna, do, um, I'm gonna do some rewind and some reminding of us of, of this wonderful truth in this text. I was sitting in Preaching Collective, which is a place where all the pastors that teach redemption talk about a passage and how are we gonna, how are we gonna go for it, how are we gonna preach it. And, and because Paul, and you're gonna find this, repeats himself a lot, and because we're taking such a slow pace, you find yourself going, wow, I'm gonna... Say that again. I'm going to say that again. And you deal with the like, maybe people are getting tired of hearing this. And somebody said this, and if, if, if they're wrong, we can just judge them. All right, but they said, people don't hear and they don't remember. And so you just got to keep saying the same thing. Okay, I can do that. So part of this experience will be going back and grabbing truths and bringing them forward. But I'm going to do something for us that helps shape a way to remember. I'm going to give you an outline, a grid to hang all this wonderful stuff in, another way to see it, that there's a wonderful big picture that Paul is talking about, and he looks at it through three lenses, okay? What God has done what God is doing and what God will do. That's in this run-on sentence, okay? So in, in one sense, you could look at it as past praise, present praise, and future praise. That's, that's this doxology that's coming out of Paul here. Let's deal with the first one, okay, as we remind ourselves of this truth. Paul's praise for what God has done. If you were here a few weeks ago, we dealt with verses three through six. Let's read it, and I'll give you kind of a reminder thought. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here is the, here is the thought on Paul's mind as he considers what God has done. That God has made a decision before the foundations of the world to predestine or choose some to be his children. Now, the first time we said it, uh, my assumption is some of you heard it for the first time. And in your heart, just like my heart, first time I heard it was, whoa, Nellie, I've got a whole bunch of problems with that sentence. It, it doesn't match my experience. It doesn't match my upbringing. It doesn't match fill in the blank. Nevertheless, it says it. The word of God says it. And we're in Ephesians, and so for 10 months, he says it again and again and again. We can't escape it. So we have to deal with this sentence that he brings in verses, in, in verses three to, through six, that God has made a decision. He made the decision before the foundations of the world to predestine or choose some to be his children, period. Now, if you're thinking, there's a series of thoughts you have towards that sentence, but one that pops out in my mind right away, did back 35, 40 years ago, was why? This makes no sense. Why? Well, Paul gives us some of the answer. Remember when we dealt with the last couple words of verse four, first one of verse five, in love he. If you don't start with his affections, then you miss his intentions. In love he, predestined. That's what it says. That somehow in the heart, the affections of God, it was his best plan. In fact, there's another phrase in verse nine, for his good pleasure. So if we put those two thoughts together for why would he do this, you end up with his love and his delight. It's like me eating ice cream. That's why I do it. He loves to save. It's his delight to rescue. That is the picture of why God would do this. There's some other things I didn't introduce to you last time that I wanna just briefly touch on today because I think it'll make sense as God and his spirit grow us in understanding this. But the second why is because we have an ability problem. I don't know if anybody told you this. But you have an ability problem. In our flesh, without Jesus, we are not neutral when it comes to our thoughts of God. We're not stuck between two opinions left to choose what's best for us. That is not our condition. Sin says so much more about our condition. In fact, there's words theologians use like depravity or we are depraved. The, the point of the verse or that thought is not as you're bad as you could possibly be, but your whole being is so affected by sin that you can't just do what you think you can do. And let me prove my point. Uh, in our flesh, we cannot choose God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter eight. In describing, he's in this section describing life living in the spirit, like when God does this work in us and we're living out this wonderful truth. He talks about Jesus coming on and taking the likeness of flesh. And we know what that means. He became like one of us to go to the cross, to die in our place. We, we know that idea. But Paul is reflecting on the sinful flesh life and he says this. This is the, this is the truth that most of us weren't raised in. The mind governed by the flesh, which is everyone before they come to Christ, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor, and this is the kicker, nor can it do so. That's a condition of ability, can't. Not indifferent to it, can't. So that's a condition, we have an ability problem. In fact, Jesus said it this way in, in John chapter six, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there's, a, there's an ability problem, but there's also this other issue that we deal with, a desire problem, okay? Again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 describes it this way, that natural person or the unconverted heart does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're a joke to him. Now, that's a paraphrase. Foolishness is the word. 
Like it's, it's so absurd. The Spirit of God and the things of the Spirit of God make us laugh. They're silly. That's what natural man does. So we have an ability problem. We are not free from just nothing to choose between options. We're broken against God. And not only that, but I think it's a joke. I don't even desire it, whatever it is. So there's some issues there in our heart. But why? In love, he, that's why he, it was his delight to save. We have an ability problem, we have a desire problem. But here's, the, here's what the text tells us in verse six. He chose some to be his children for the praise of his glorious grace. That's why. The ultimate is because he goes on display. Remember I used the illustration of an amplifier, what it's intended to do. It's intended to take the passion and the affections and the love of, an, of a player and broadcast it. Well, this whole wonderful story of redemption broadcasts God, which is the point of everything making much of him. In spite of what we might feel, like we're the center of the universe, sorry to break your hearts this morning, you're not. I'm not. He is. And everything revolves around making much of him. Everything. All of creation, all of his actions, all of his plans, all of his sovereign reign over all that he has made, his judging work, his saving work, all of redemption is all for the praise of his glorious grace. In verses three through six is Paul being overwhelmed with God, what God has done. Oh my gosh, God, look what you plan to do. Look what you have done for us. So here is Paul now looking through the lens of the past with these praises on God in his mind. And he says, you know, I praise you, God, for the redemption that began before the foundations of the world. You set your affections on me, which is probably the appropriate response. Let's add to this understanding of this wonderful lens that Paul's looking through in this sentence. Last week, Paul, the pastor, not the apostle, all right, um, took us through a reminder of our present praise, what we have today. In fact, look at verse seven, a lot packed into one verse where he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul says we have redemption, we have forgiveness, we have grace. Let's back up and run by this. And let me just give you an encouragement, okay? I know how this works for Christians who know Jesus. We read passages to glean something new. And we most of the time drive over things that are old. But if you want to transform your devotional life, pretend that you know nothing, always. Don't ever read over redemption without stopping to define it. Don't ever read over grace without stopping to define it or forgiveness without stopping to remember. Because if you do, you're gonna let go. You're just gonna pretend like it's, I got that, I got that. No, we don't. Glean it, constantly glean it. Keep digging. And that's what we're gonna do in these, in these words here in the discussion of, of what we have now. Um, the wonderful truth is redemption, is ours today. It's interesting that other than the word redemption in the title of our church, like you walk out front, there's a sign that says Redemption Church. That's pretty much the only time we use that word. It doesn't get used in our culture very often. I would like to redeem a sandwich, please. We don't say that. It just doesn't happen in our language. In fact, our culture, I would suggest, has a hard time even understanding what it means. But let me define to you what it means by looking through the lens of the Ephesians, the people who heard this. They had no problem understanding redemption. They lived in a culture of slavery. In 60 AD, it was totally normal for this 
idea, this slavery defining redemption thing to be understood. People were born into slavery, clearly. People were captured and made slaves. And if you were in some sort of debt you couldn't pay, you would sell yourself and become a slave to pay the debt. So slavery was pretty common. And as a slave, it's obvious you were property of the owner. And the only way a slave could be free is if someone paid the redemption price to free them. So you would, they would buy you and you'd be free. The word means to buy back, to buy out of. In fact, the total phrase that Paul uses here, redemption in his blood, that tells us not only what, but the how. Redemption, how? Jesus died to buy us back. Our freedom was purchased by the blood of Jesus. One complete, in full, one-time payment that satisfies God completely. Done. One payment in his, his blood. You might remember this, um, but it's way deeper than we can even possibly fathom. The wages of sin, Romans 6, is death. He wasn't kidding. Somebody had to die. Blood had to be spilled. That's the wages of sin. Just to remind us of the obvious, God doesn't redeem us by overlooking our sin. That's classically us. We pretend that we deal with sin by going, never mind, don't want to look at it. God can't, can't redeem us from our sin by overlooking our sin. God has to pay the price for our sin. That's the point of Jesus. His death paid that price. A payment or a ransom did two things. One, it freed us from this debt and the consequence of this debt, this sin, and it bought us back to him. It restored us to him. Here's a story I read this week that paints the picture. A boy and his dad lived next to the sea. He loved the sea, the kid did. So his dad and him took months to build a little sailboat. And he would go by the edge of the sea and he would launch his little sailboat, have a blast until one day a big wind came and blew the sailboat away. And he was totally brokenhearted, spent weeks looking for it, couldn't find it. One day he's walking through town and next to the, next to, uh, the uh, shop owner there in the window was his sailboat. He goes running into the store. He goes, this is my boat. <laughs> no, 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 it's my boat. I just paid a big price to a fisherman for it. If you want this boat, you got to pay for it. So the little kid got a job and he worked months. Comes with the money, he buys the boat. And then he says this, you're twice mine. I made you and I bought you. That is redemption. That is the totality of this wonderful story of God making you, saving you, and bringing you back to himself. You understand? It's a wonderful picture, redeemed and restored. It's the story of what is ours today in Jesus. It's a present praise. That other word that Paul uses, redemption in his blood, he, he says forgiveness in verse seven. Forgiveness of our trespasses, Again, not to be too critical of our culture, but I don't think we know much about this word either. Although we use it more often, we have distorted its meaning. Here's what forgiveness looks like. I'm gonna paint a picture. Forgiveness, at least in what I've witnessed in our world, is like two kids that got caught fighting in a playground and the teacher forces them to make up. You know what I'm talking about? You have to patch it up because it's immature not to. But I don't really like you. I don't want to see you again. In fact, I'd like to dot your eye. That's what I prefer. That's our version of forgiveness. Let's just be honest. We say we forgive, but we keep copious records on the offenses of other people. We bring them back up whenever they suit our needs and use them against each other. 
In fact, our culture is so addicted to holding on to the offenses, we're even using them to shape our identities. That person sinned against me in this way, that is what I am. It's twisted. It's not forgiveness. It's not at all the forgiveness that we experience with God. In Micah 7.19, you just write that down and then just listen to me. I don't want your distractions here. Um, Wonderful passage, you might not have heard it before, but here's what the prophet says. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And he will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. That's how God forgives our sin. One person described it like a parent who's watching his children play in the playground and sees a poisonous snake get close and he runs out there in a fury and stomps to obliteration the snake. Removes any potential of harm, reduces it to nothing. That's the picture Micah paints for how God stomps out our sin. And then that wonderful phrase we're familiar with, in fact, we even sang it a little bit in a phrase today, the idea that he casts our sin into the sea. What does that mean? One writer suggests that it's a clear reference to uh, God's people, Israel, leaving Egypt and the pursuit of Pharaoh. Listen to this. It just moved me so deeply when I read it. The Egyptians were prevented from catching up with the fleeing Israelites and reversing their deliverance. The freedom of the people of God will not be marred by some consequence of their past sin catching up with them to spoil their delight in the provision God has made for them. Not a single Egyptian soldier soldier crawled onto a bank to continue to torment Israel and not a single one of your sins will continue to torment your soul. Amen, church? Forgiveness. Stomped to oblivion. Buried in the sea can't chase you or haunt you. That is the kind of forgiveness that God has towards our sin. God's forgiveness is so much greater. Here's just a quick, not totality, but a quick run through of phrases used to describe how he forgives. He blots out our sin. He forgets our sin. He removes our sin. He covers our sin. He takes it away. He washes it. He cancels it and he forgives it all in the person of Jesus Christ. That is forgiveness. That's ours right now. Look at me for a second, okay? Do you believe you can be forgiven like that? Anybody and any sin? Like any sin. Whatever person you can fathom in your mind that's the worst of the worst, can God do something for them? You gotta believe it. You gotta understand it. There's only one way that's possible. Jesus is the only way that's possible. Maybe you might understand now why we make such a big deal about Jesus. Why he is the story, why he is in our songs, why it's on a sign out front that says all of life is all for Jesus because he can forgive like that. He can take anybody and any sin and he can stick it in the sea and remember it no more and stomp it into oblivion. All those things that you're guilty of and I'm guilty of, all those propensities, all those tendencies, all that stuff, all the stuff you hate, he looks at you and doesn't have a clue what you're talking about. That's forgiveness. That's why we celebrate Jesus. That's why he's the point of our worship. That's ours right now. Not only redemption, but forgiveness. Let's go on. 
he adds to this, this idea of grace. He calls it in the text in verse seven, the riches of his grace. I'm gonna paraphrase. I'm gonna call it overflowing, ridiculous grace because that's what it means. It's a super abounding grace. It's a multiplying grace. It's a where sin increased, grace increased all the more kind of grace. It's a Romans 5 kind of grace. You can't fathom this kind of grace. That's the grace of God towards people who confess Christ. Let me try to express to you how incredibly awesome and deep and wide his grace is. It's very important that you circle and understand according to the riches of his grace here. Because I'm gonna tell you what he didn't say and it'll make the point. Paul did not say out of the riches of his grace. He said according to the riches of his grace and there is a huge difference. Let me define it this way. 30 years ago plus, I was kind of self-employed. It's sort of a joke. It's a way to say you had something to do and didn't get paid for it. But I was sort of self-employed as a handyman. And somehow the church, the place I went to church, found out about it. And a particularly wealthy uh, guy in our church said, hey man, I got a basement that needs to be wired. Would you be willing to do it? And I go, sure. I can put in some outlets and I can do some wiring. So I worked a day and a half putting the wiring in his basement. And, and we got all done. He said, well, what do I owe you? Now this is where I made my mistake, okay? Um, I'm not a businessman. And I was feeling a little insecure about just doing my own stuff. And I said, hey, whatever. Whatever you think it's worth to you. Classic mistake, don't ever do it. Um, and he paid me 25 bucks. Yeah, let me say it again, he paid me 25 bucks. <laughs> and I'm not bitter. <laughs> he was really wealthy. And he paid me 25 bucks. Now listen, out of his riches. And I was so desperately hoping he would pay me according to his riches. I was so hopeful that somehow he'd go, hey man, let me just bless you. I know you're just getting in business. You're young, you just got married. Here's whatever. I was praying that he would look at his resources and go, well, take it. It didn't go so well. Do you see the difference between out of and according to? Do you understand the lavishness of the riches of God towards those of us who are his children? He gives from his unlimited supply. Not out of, but according to. Paraphrase, I call it silly riches of grace. Makes you giggle, riches of grace. Can't believe what you see and what you hear kind of grace. That's the grace of God for the people of God. Same word in the same kind of concept in 1 John 3. See what great love the Father has. Here it is, lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that is what you are. Lavished affection, lavished love and lavished grace. That's ours right now, church. You believe that? Let's add to it. Paul adds one more in verse eight. He says, wisdom and understanding is ours. Okay, he says, these, according to the riches of grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight or understanding, making known to us the mystery of his will. Wisdom and understanding are ours now. When, when Paul is instructing them, there's an easy way when you read this to kind of think that it applies to God. Like the wisdom and understanding is his, that in his wisdom and his understanding, he's doing all this work. And is it true that God is wisdom? 
And he has understanding, of course it's true. But that's not where this wisdom and understanding comes from. This wisdom and understanding is applied to another thing that we get being in Christ. So we get redemption, we get forgiveness, we get grace, and he adds to the pile wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is simply understanding of the ultimate things. That's what one writer called it. The ultimate things, things like God, man, sin, Satan, hell, death, heaven, righteousness, grace, mercy, forgiveness, redemption, ultimate things. That God gives us wisdom to see the gospel and go, I get, I get it. I understand it. And then this idea of insight or understanding simply means the comprehension of the so what because of that truth you understand. Get it? It's the practical outworking of all you understand about the ultimate things. God is, so therefore I what? It's the outworking of it. It's the practical side of it. How you deal with problems, how you love your neighbor, how you live your life. The reality of, of, of God, wisdom, affects your reality. That's understanding. That's what he's talking about here. One writer said it this way, that God in his lavishness to us gives us both the spiritual ability to understand his word and to know how to obey it. Those two things. We get that. We get it now. Now, I don't want to judge you too much, so let's just do the self-exposure. I'm going to talk to you about what I was like before I got saved. I was stuck on stupid. But I wasn't alone. Everybody I know before Jesus was stuck on stupid. No offense, okay? I didn't know the truth, and I didn't know what truth to follow. Didn't know. But God in his lavishness, beyond just giving me forgiveness and redemption, giving me grace, he gives me wisdom and he gives me understanding. Guess what happens to me now? Not perfect, but in growing transformation. Guess what happens to me now? Understanding of how to lead to right action. Becoming like Christ. Transformation. That's ours in Christ right now. You have redemption. You have forgiveness. You have lavish grace, you have wisdom, you have understanding in Jesus right now. That's what Paul's thinking through. He's praising God like, man, I'm so amazed at what you did. I'm so amazed at what you're doing in giving these things to us. Now Paul turns his thoughts in verse 9 and 10 to a future thought. What God will do. 9 and 10, he says it this way. Again, this, this amazing grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. We're gonna run into this idea of mystery uh, several more times in our study of Ephesians. In fact, Paul brings it up four particular times. In chapter six, he talks about the mystery of the gospel, and I think what he's doing there is taking this whole discussion in six chapters and throwing it into one pile and saying, isn't this amazing what we didn't know? The gospel mystery. And in chapter five, verse 32, he has just finished the discussion about husbands and wives becoming one flesh, and he goes, he switches it right there and says, just like Christ and the church, kind of a mystery, he throws that in. So we're calling it the one flesh mystery of how Jesus and the church are one. And he uses marriage as an illustration. We'll get to that in a few weeks or a few months. And then the, the, la the next one would be this, this idea of, of reconciliation mystery. In, in chapter two, verse 11 to chapter three, verse nine, he talks about the Jew and Gentile reconciled. Let's call this the horizontal mystery. There's no way enemies love each other. There's no way they're reconciled. But in Christ, this mystery, look at what's happening. Racism and division 
gone because of Christ. The mystery of, of, one, of, of this unity. And then the one he's dealing with right here, it is the mystery of all things being united in Christ. Some have called this the vertical mystery. So if you want to get all of them, you got the vertical mystery, that we are, everything's united under Christ. The horizontal divisions between people are fixed. The one flash of the church and Christ being one, and then the future big bucket of the gospel mystery. That's what we're going to get to deal with. But right here, we have this idea of all things united in Christ. And those of us who have been forgiven, redeemed, know this, that there's a new day coming. Not yet, but it's going to happen. A new day. Paul calls it a mystery, a, a secret in times past, not because nobody could under, uh, comprehend it, but that no mind could discover it on their own. That's why it's a mystery. That what we know, what we know, church, about this forgiveness, what we know about redemption and grace, what we know about wisdom and understanding is impossible without divine revelation. Without, without the Holy Spirit of God opening blind eyes and dead hearts, Nobody knows nothing about the kingdom of God. And so that's why he uses the, the phraseology of mystery or secret. What you and I know now and what we confess with our whole hearts is that one day God will bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head who is Jesus Christ, our king. That is this mystery. People, the earth, the cosmos, all under Christ. One writer put it this way. All redeemed souls, all the universe, all the faithful angelic hosts, literally everything in heaven and on earth, everything material, everything spiritual, everything within, without, above, and below will be united in Christ. This is the blessing of the universe. That is what he will do. Now, I'm not going to surprise anybody with this, but you know our world's kind of messed up, yeah? Kind of upside down, inside out. Nothing unified in it. Wars and corruption, division and factions and hatred and decay and sin and Satan. I could go on. It's, it's really upside down, but there is a day coming, church, when God will have completed his eternal plan and every trace of evil will be disposed of. He's gonna rule it. One day, one day that suffering. You know the song we sang, God, you're so good? There's a, there's a verse in there that says, and if the day of suffering should come, I want to change that. Like when? Just brace yourself. Suffering's a part of the deal. One day, the suffering, gone. The sin you hate, what sin? The divisions, the wars, the anger, gone. The brokenness around us, the evil in us, gone under Christ one day. Paul's thinking about, he's gonna take care of it. He's doing a work, he's redeeming the people, he's showing off, he's doing what he should do. But one day, he's gonna take the mess and put it all under Jesus and it will submit to his lordship. And all this stuff that hurts us and hurts others, one day, church. Do you believe that? Yes. You understand why this is a sentence without periods or commas? You understand why he can't help but just coming out of him? This is big stuff. This is big stuff. History belongs to God. 
not to the puny plans of man or the perverse power of Satan. History is written and directed by its creator who will see it through to the fulfillment of his own ultimate purpose, the summing up of all things in Christ. He designed his great plan in the ages past. He now sovereignly works it out according to his divine will and in the fullness of time he will complete and perfect it in his son in whom it will forever operate in righteous harmony and glorious newness along with all things in the heavens and things upon the earth. That's what he's gonna do. I never get tired of reading this, by the way. That's why I said, if we don't move on, I'm cool with that. We got 14 verses to spend the next 10 months on. I'm cool with that. This is, this is amazing stuff. I never get tired of hearing what God did do for me. When I was at war with him, when my heart was hard towards him, when I didn't want him, when I thought he was stupid and silly, I love talking about it. I love talking about what he's providing now. There isn't any bad day in my week that he can't forgive and doesn't run to rescue. And there's a plan for all the stuff that's broken, but he'll lord over it and make it right. And the conclusion is for the glory of his praise. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, don't let us get bored with this. Don't let us get comfortable with it. Let it overwhelm us every time we look at it. Let it transform the way we feel about our failures and let it transform the way we feel about those who fail us. God, help us see this beauty of the gospel in its biggest picture. Your affection before the foundations of the world that changes your people today and ultimately perfects them in the future. All we can say is thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.